Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, be sure to rate and review the episode. Just want the listeners to be aware that this episode contains reference to drugs and gun violence that may be triggering. Thanks. Positively Gam is sponsored by Vaseline. See how they are working towards equitable skincare for all at Vaseline.com. Tell me one thing you would want people to know about you, Tamika, that they don't already know. That's not a well-known piece of information about yourself. So I have such a big mouth and I've had incredible moments where I think I have been able to articulate Black rage and Black pain, but I actually do not like doing speeches at all. I hide, I cry, I beg people not to have me to speak. What's up, everybody? I'm Gammy, and this is Positively Gam. Every week, I have raw, in-depth conversation with inspirational people pushing for change on everything from aging, relationships, politics, wellness, to the current issues facing the Black community. Joining me today is civil rights activist, community organizer, and co-founder of Until Freedom, a social justice group fighting against systemic and racial injustice, Miss Tamika Mallory. Tamika is one of the most powerful speakers of her generation. She delivered two of those speeches earlier this year after the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Welcome, Tamika. You know how I feel about you. I'm a huge fan and I'm really excited to talk with you today. People know you as this 
organizer, of course, and they know you from Until Freedom. But I wanted to try to get just a little bit more personal with you today, if you don't mind. Is that okay? Sure. I love that. With you, for sure. Okay. All right. Because you you seem like such a superhero all the time. And I know how hard it is. But when the cape comes off, who is Tamika really? And what is life like for you? And how is it that you went about and made the decision to commit yourself to activism? So I did get involved with activism because of my parents initially. So it's very similar to church. When your parents take you to church as a child, you have no choice but to go and you better have a positive attitude because you'll be there all day. And that's just, it just, it's a part of your upbringing. For me, We did go to church on Sunday, but Saturday rallies and other community activities were even they were equally important to my parents. And so my mom went to church, but my dad wasn't a big churchgoer. However, he was a big activist and always helping people in the community. And so, um, you know, I had to get up every Saturday morning and attend rallies and other events. And throughout the week, my parents were the ones who would be working within the housing projects to feed people and just to assist other families. They went to precinct council meetings. And now imagine me being a little kid with folks dragging me around to be with old people all the time. It was really miserable. Where did you grow up? What city? In Harlem, in Manhattanville Projects, on 133rd Street and Old Broadway. We as young, you know, younger people are influenced, of course, by your surroundings. And so imagine living in the projects where some of the kids there, their parents weren't woke, if you will, And there was a lot of stuff happening. And I was attracted to what I thought was cool. The people hanging out, people who were able, young girls, they were able to stay out all night. They slept over one another's homes. They had all the boyfriends. And so watching those things play out right before my eyes, but not being able to participate in much of it because of my parents taking me to places where, like I said, there were a lot of older people and it was a lot of talking. It wasn't as fun to me. Now, one thing I do remember is when I learned about chanting, it's, it felt like really demanding to say no justice, no peace. And that was something that got me pretty excited. So, you know, hanging around the young people within the movement, we started to be expert chanters. And that was something that made me feel like we were having at least a little bit of fun. You have a son. And the father of your son, can you talk to me a little bit about about him and perhaps if that had any influence on your decision to commit your life to activism? Absolutely. My son's father. So first of all, just piggybacking off of this idea that I was pretty bored and pretty miserable and thought I was being punished. I rebelled by the time I got to about 16. It started around 12, running away from home, um, you know, and and not being very uh, respectful of my parents. You know, if I told them I was going to the store at 12 o'clock, I didn't come back until four, you know, things like that. So that started around the age of 12. But by the time I got to be 16, it was really a problem. I was trying to find a way to be in the streets, just being attracted to uh, what I thought was uh, cool. 
And I met my son's father along the way. He actually lived in the same building that my parents live in. His grandparents and my mom and dad lived there. His parents were perpetual drug abusers who had been in and out of prison his entire life. So he was living with his grandparents. We met in an elevator. We started seeing each other. It was probably the most toxic relationship you could ever imagine. We were fighting all the time. Everything you could think of, too young to be in a a relationship like the one that we were in. I got pregnant, had my son, and he moved away from New York City with a group of people that he met somewhere in Harlem. Two of them were brothers. And in the course of time, what we have been told is that they were selling marijuana. And one night after he left my son's birthday party, my son's second birthday party in New York, my son is now 21. He'll be 22 in March. Um, When he left his birthday party in New York and went back to uh, Pennsylvania where they were living, the drugs that they had in the house were gone. And of course, because these were two brothers who were sort of the head of this enterprise, if you will, I don't think it was that big of an enterprise, but nonetheless, their little business, they they turned on him. They looked at him as the suspect for how the drugs went missing. It came out in court that it actually had something to do with an upset girlfriend and something totally different. But they, over a day, tortured him, beating him, trying to find out Uh, where the drugs were. And by the time the evening came, they knew that you can't just beat a man and let him go because the retaliation issues and all of that. And Jason was a pretty tough guy. He had grown up in the streets. And so they knew that they had to kill him. And they took him to a field. They waited basically until it got dark. Because as I said, this went on throughout many hours of the day. And by evening, They took him out to a wooded area. They shot him twice and they pushed him over an embankment where, uh, you know, they believed he was going to, of course, fall all the way down. But he actually got caught on some branches and was laying there for two weeks. At the end of the two week period, a woman who was walking her dog happened, noticed that the dog was excited about this particular area. She looked over the embankment and saw his sneakers caught to the tree. And of course, the police came and they discovered that it was Jason. So he was fully decomposed. We weren't able to have a proper service for him, open casket or any of those things. Um, And, you know, like I said, he had been there dead for a long time and we were looking for him, Um, you know, calling his phone, trying to find out what was going on. uh, And he was dead. Wow. That that must have been horrible. And how old were you at this time? Like... 18 years old. I was actually 20 because my son was two. I had my son at 18. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was 20. And we weren't together. I always say that because people, you know, they they like to say, well, you know, her boyfriend, he, he actually wasn't. Uh, we weren't together. But it's funny that for the few weeks right before it, Gammy, he and I started to become friends. We were in that phase of the co-parenting situation. We fell out over two years. I had all, I was mad. He was mad. We did all of that. And now we were starting to talk to each other and try to figure out how we could be friends and move forward with our son. Um, And, you know, the lifestyle, it caught up with him. And, you know, I always say to people that the bottom line is you do wrong and these things can happen, but we have no, we can't 
um, separate how he grew up and the things that he saw as a kid from what ended up happening to him, his ultimate demise, is directly connected. Even though he lived with his grandparents, who are amazing people, his grandmother, his grandfather is now deceased, but his, his grandparents were amazing. They tried to do everything they could, but it just isn't, it isn't always enough uh, to have your grandparents taking care of you with your parents in and out of your life, going in and out of prison and having this drug abuse issue that today is being called a mental health crisis, a public health crisis. But at that time, the way to deal with drug abuse was to throw people in jail and not to give them any real help at all. I know all about that. It was to criminalize the the whole circumstance. And yeah, I have a whole lot of feelings about how now it's an epidemic when when we the black community has been suffering it for decades and we were just made criminals. How did all of that affect your decision to get involved with activism, do you think? I didn't want to talk about his death much. But in my own family, I was hearing so many devastating stories from women about their child's father and them being out of the home for various reasons. And so it started to come together for me what my parents had been teaching me. Again, back to church, because, of course, in church, when you're little, you're there because you have to be. But at some point, the light bulb goes off and Mm-hmm. Yeah. And God becomes your own. You know what I mean? And that's what happened for me. The movement became mine. It was no longer my parents movement that I had to be a part of because I was forced. It was now that I I was the one running around like, what time are we going to the rally? Like y'all are not going. I can't believe it. I want everybody to get involved because I made the connection between poverty and drug abuse and lack of education and all those things directly to what happened to him at the end of his life. And I understood that it wasn't me that needed to be embarrassed, that America really needed to have to explain why this crisis of Black men being killed wasn't the front page of the newspaper with solutions to back it up, because I knew that if it were white boys, we would be doing something about it. you as a single mother, what was that like trying to raise your son with the lifestyle that you chose, important as it was? Respectfully and for lack of a better word, it was effed up. Like, you know, thank God my parents did step in and trust and believe my mom didn't step in because uh, you know, she was excited about me, um, you know, having this baby, although she, of course, they love their grandson so much. I I just the way you guys love your grandchildren is just incredible because we we as kids, we never received the kind of love that these grandchildren. Get. <laughs> it's just <laughs> my parents, they're gone over their grandchildren. And so they loved him. But she was always she was so disappointed because my mom knew that I could do so much more without having a baby that I had to also take care of. And so when Jason died, I remember seeing my father at the burial as they were lowering the casket into the ground. My father went over to the casket and punched it twice on the top and said, I got this. We got it. We're going to take care of him. I'll never forget seeing him do that. And it was 
it was I think it was in that moment that they realized they really had to step in and help me because I was probably a disaster anyway. And they knew that he wasn't going to get the right type of attention because I was out of the honeymoon stage of washing the clothes and doing the thing. Now I'm at the point of, will you watch him while I go to the club? And so they they stepped in and they began to help me. I got into, I started working at National Action Network for Reverend Al Sharpton. So I got really busy. The club stage phase was real, real short. I got really busy at work. And today you have to ask my son how it felt not to have his mom. Basketball games, I wasn't there. Parent-teacher conferences, I, I was. I went to some, I went to some, but I missed a lot more than I should have. Just being present even at home, he, he talks about the fact that he doesn't remember us really sitting down watching movies together and doing things like that. And it's because my life is still so on all the time. And I think coming home from trauma, right? Because during this time, you're talking about Amadou Diallo, Abna Louima, all types of cases that's happening, the Jersey Four. Um, you know, we're dealing with all of the uh, backlash, if you will, of all of those cases that happen so close together. And then, of course, Sean Bell, which is where I really got into, kicked in my gear in activism and, and sort of started to be on the forefront. And and that's a lot of trauma. So when I came home, I would come home and want to just take it all off and not really talk. I'm dealing with, I just saw crying mothers. I'm burying babies because I was also working in the community and handling funerals for women who lost their children. And he experienced all of that with me. And, and now today he gets it, but he still... He gets it now, but... He gets it, but there's still resentment. There's still resentment and it comes out whenever I'm pushing him because the one thing I never stopped doing, no matter where I was, I always had high expectations of him and I always took care of him and made sure that he did what he was supposed to do. And so there comes the clash because he wants to use my absence as an excuse for his issues and I wouldn't allow it. And so he would, you know, start with the you're never here. And I don't even know if you love me. And and it happened all the time. And in fact, the last big incident that we had was just last year where he finally moved out. And now I had never if I knew that moving out would be the thing to make us best friends, I would have he would have been gone a long time ago because that's my homie now. <laughs> And so how did you all deal with that, though? Did you ever seek any out, outside counsel? Did you all go to therapy or anything like that to help overcome some of these issues of abandonment? We're doing it now. We're doing it now. I so feel it, Tamika. I so feel you because, of course, Jada went through the, the same kind of stuff with me. It's just that my absence was in a different way. My absence was because I was an addict. Yeah, but it still feels the same. It feels the same. It feels the same. And I used to use that as my excuse. It's not like I'm out here hanging out. I'm not on drugs because, you know, my mother, she was like, let me just tell you something. You are trash. Like she was on me hard. And I used to be like, I can't believe you would say that to me. I'm out here working. Listen, and she would say nothing is more important than taking care of your son. I think seeing me where I am now, everyone is 
is now understands that it was God's calling. It wasn't my own. It wasn't my choosing. And now they're like, okay, we're glad that we invested and we stayed together. But there was some real tumultuous times because I was working for someone else, leaving my child for weeks at a time. So that to them wasn't that exciting. <laughs> but now that they see where I am, they know it was all preparation for the moment that we're currently in. And I'm I'm glad to have this conversation with you too, Tamika, because I think people see you now and think that this is new. Oh, sh- this is who's on the scene right now. But you've been doing this for years. And so I, I just think about the level of stress that that causes in your relationships, not with just your son. How has it affected some of your other personal relationships? Are you dating now? You got all the good questions, Gammy. The good questions. The dating part is hard. That's the part. I was in a relationship with a man who we were together for 11 years. He is 27 years older than me. And when I, when, when I was younger and he was younger, it was great. You know, he was the one who had the career, an amazing career in advertising, had the number one advertising agency for black people in America. Um, and I was just sort of figuring it out so I could, you know, run around with him and jump on the plane with him and be, you know, work from wherever on my laptop and do those things. And that was cool. But over time, as my career has begun to blossom and my lifestyle is that I'm gone and sometimes I forget the call and I'm a mess. I'm never, I'm always going, the door is revolving in and out. Again, the same issues with my son. When I come home, I'm not really in the mood to talk. And sometimes I'm on the phone too much and all those things. And after a while, it became clear that we're, and we're the best of friends. I mean, that we talk every day. I'm probably not the best, the easiest person to love right now. And so that's something that I have to work on because there are moments of extreme loneliness. Because when you do want to stop, there's nobody to call to say, let's go on a trip or do something together. Um, And so I find myself entertaining myself, uh, spending a lot of time out alone, going to dinner, doing things by myself because it's really difficult to turn to your friends and sort of take them up and down on your roller coaster. You're never available. But then when you are available, you want everybody to change everything to feed what you need. And that it doesn't really work like that. So it's pretty hard. It's hard. Perhaps I have to accomplish a few more things so that I can actually invest in a relationship in the way in which it, it, it I need to. Now you say accomplish some things before I go on to the to the Next question. Let me let's unpack that for a minute. What is it that you think that you need to accomplish? So I just turned in the manuscript to my first book, State of Emergency. I I wouldn't talk to anybody. I wouldn't even allow people to look at me for the last for the last few months while I was in the writing process. And then the editing process is horrible for anybody who knows it's hard. I felt suicidal during the last few days because I just felt like I didn't write enough. It didn't say enough. So I was probably really moody. People who write books need a sabbatical. You need to be somewhere by yourself because it's hard to have to entertain people and get that done at the same time. 
I and then now I have a second book, my memoir. The first book is about the movement and the state of America. But the next book is actually my memoir. So I really feel like and that's I have a year to do that work. I think I need to get through that. And then there's some personal things that I have not had an opportunity. You asked the question about therapy. I don't talk much about it, but I do mention that I had a period after experiencing severe attacks from the right wing during the Women's March that I got heavily addicted to Xanax and had to go to a drug treatment program. Then I had to go to a PTSD program to try to address how I got on the Xanax. And so while I'm not on any of that and I'm happy to be clean, there's still some residual things about why that even happened to me in the first place and some restoration that I need to do. So I don't know that I can go and and really be someone's lover when I have I'm missing some things that I need to deal with for myself. That's an important recognition about yourself. Hugely important. You don't want to come into a relationship with all of your damage. So you got to heal yourself first. And you are the most important person because only you can do that. That's the hard part. Yeah, and that but that's so important to your recovery process. So don't don't take that lightly. And I'm I'm glad to hear you share that because it's so important. Talk a little bit more about the stresses of this life that you've chosen, because I think people kind of have a tendency to glamorize it, Tamika. They see you on TV and they see you with these powerful speeches and but there's no salary. There's no health benefits. How do you what is that like and how do you take care of yourself and your family? So there is a salary, but in order to get it, it's hard work because we have established an organization called Until Freedom where people can donate and we all receive a salary from the organization. The problem is that the work we do has peaks and lows. People are paying attention when George Floyd is killed. People are paying attention when you're mobilizing for Breonna Taylor. And then we fall in love with the fact that we elected Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And now it's okay, they'll take care of it. And, and we just let's depend on the Democratic president when in fact, that's not accurate. It's really going to be the work of the people to push them that will get the job done. And that's where we, you know, constantly work in is trying to figure out how do we respectfully, but yet and still very firmly push the administration to make do on the promises. And so in those moments, you see less support, less giving. And we try not to take corporate money for our general operating expenses. So if some corporate partner wants to be a part of an event or some activity that we're doing, we will entertain it depending on who that uh, player is. But for general operating, we try not to take corporate money because we don't want to be censored, if you will, from what we can say, what we can get involved with and how hard we can challenge the system. And so that speaks to your point. The salary piece, you just never know. We are constantly raising money. And the way in which we look at it is that we have to raise money for a full year so that we know at least for this one year we're going to get paid. However, that's not a sustainable model for people who are 40 years old and older. 
all of us of the four co-founders are 40. I think attorney Angelo Pinto is maybe like 38, but our lives, like, and we all have children, we have families, we have homes, we have other things, and we have aspirations. And people don't necessarily, they don't, I don't know, I get these questions all the time. What do you, how, why are you, or where do you get your money in? And, and why do you look so cute? What are you doing with your money? First of all, the money that comes in from the organization pretty much does cover healthcare and things like that, paying your taxes, those types of things. And of course, your basic living expenses. But I also can speak. I can write. I can do other things. I, I plan events. I convene individuals and, and do consulting work. And so just like everyone else, should I not be paid for the service of and, and my skills that I have that I bring to the table? I would hope that people want me to be able to buy a home uh, and to have a car, you know, to go on a vacation, to look nice, because I don't feel like living in Kentucky or being on the road in these places. I was in Mississippi at Parchman Prison fighting with the, the Mississippi Prison Coalition group there to stop the literal death of prisoners every single day. Two, maybe three prisoners were dying in Parchman Prison. And we were there living in Mississippi. I don't want to stay at the worst hotel in town. I want to stay at least in a decent place that I can feel comfortable because I'm out there doing things that most people are not able or willing to do. And so it, there people do either glamorize it or they diminish the value and think that somehow we're supposed to just be, you know what? And it's a mindset that has been taught to us. Being enslaved has really done us in, right? It did us in because the mindset that we have is that people doing service are supposed to be poor. And so knowing that Dr. King died, not having the types of resources, like we just celebrated Dr. King's day. And I wonder if today, knowing all of his contributions, we had the opportunity to give him his flowers, to give him our resources. Would we make sure that Dr. King had a beautiful home, that he had all the things necessary to be as comfortable as possible? And of course, I'm not calling myself anywhere close to Dr. King, but you get the point. I think that we would that we would pour into Dr. King if we could do it all over again. And I think that's the way we need to look at many activists, not just Tamika Mallory, but many activists and organizers, that there's no reason why those individuals should go home and be struggling. And by the way, the brothers on my team will tell you, when they show up at home and their wives are there taking care of their kids while they're on the road, the wives are looking at them like, where the light bill, bruh? Like, where's the food? Like, it's not about it just being a um, good nature, good moral cause. We also are working. And to your point, it is selfless and thankless. And no, because I'm not going to do it. It's real. I'm 67 years old. I'm not going to be out there marching with you. I'm not. I'm too old for that. So I appreciate what you guys are doing. And I think a lot of people do. But how do you show up for that appreciation? What we are working on is a campaign that is many black folks and brown folks and people who are our supporters, allies and accomplices will give um, a portion of their monthly resources to us so that we have the money to lead the campaigns. I think the work that we did with Breonna Taylor shows 
Now we have three officers who have at least been fired from they should be charged. They should be arrested. They should be convicted. But the system doesn't allow for an easy way to do that. It's it's this is something that we've got to work on on so many levels. It's not just Breonna Taylor, but across the nation. So many have died and have been murdered and we haven't received the type of justice. So that's a systemic problem. But in terms of pushing the, the the buttons of the system, the local system there in Louisville, Kentucky, alongside that local community, we see now that three officers who were there that night and are responsible for her death have actually been fired from their jobs. That is a direct result of the work that we did and the campaign and, and the ways in which we were able to do that work. Well, we moved into an Airbnb. I don't even know exactly what the bill was, but it cost us money to be there. The fact that Jay-Z said, I'll pick up the bill for security and also for your housing, that was very helpful to us so that we didn't have to think about that, but we focused our attention on the work that we were there to do. We also, and these are things people don't think about. I, as Tamika Mallory, who am, you know it's me, you can see me, right? I don't, I don't go into a lot of restaurants to eat in towns where I'm fighting in the local town against their authorities, especially in a place like Louisville and Kentucky. I don't go to a lot of restaurants, so I try to make sure we go to a lot of black restaurants and, you know, places like that or cross the bridges and go into other towns. So we had a chef. She bought us a good meal for dinner so that we could be safe. So nobody's trying to poison us. Right. Because this is this. These are real things. And so, again, we because of that. We were able to focus our attention every day on organizing, getting in the street, getting we've done so much work with the local community there. And in fact, we applied for other grants where we now have given money to many of the local groups and left them with resources so that they can continue to build. So these are the things that people never get to hear about and they don't necessarily see. And then they say, what you going to do with my money? I'm doing I would hope that just like we give the Red Cross and all these others that we also invest in those who are trying to provide emergency services to our communities as well. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that, Tamika, because I think it's important because there are a lot of people like me who can't participate, but this is your financial support is always a way that you can participate and help. But people do want to know how their money is being spent. And I don't think people think about all of these things. And it's very important because you guys have to survive. You have to live. One, I think I want to ask, how, what do you do to care for yourself emotionally, physically, and spiritually? Because the stress that goes along with dealing with these kinds of challenges on a daily basis is just overwhelming to me. God bless. And just I'm, I'm so thankful that somebody created therapy because, honey, a lot of people don't understand how important it is to have somebody to talk through all your stuff that's not there to judge you. It flashed across the screen or because we're involved in so many different cases, we're constantly hearing no. We're constantly hearing no charges filed. We're constantly uh, receiving pushback and to be quite honest, we're constantly fighting with our own people to try to get us on one accord as well about how we should approach the movement and what type of sacrifices are necessary in order for us to get where we're going. It's very stressful. It's extremely demanding and it's extremely painful. The last thing I'll say is this, you know, 
I finally have reached a place in my career after 25 years where I don't have to be around negative people who don't have my back. I can actually, I can say, nope, I see it already. I don't trust you. I don't think you believe in me. You don't help. You don't make me better. I feel judged. I feel I I don't feel good about your presence in my space. And I finally am at a place where I can just go. Nope. And that's good. And that's it. And it's the best. It's so liberating. Yes, I can imagine. Don't be afraid to say no. We're going to do the Wouldn't You Like to Know segment before we let you get out of here. What book are you currently reading? State of Emergency, my own book. Your own book. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So I'm reading it, editing, and getting it fine-tuned. Okay, so when when will it be ready for us? It's First of all, you can pre-order right now. Okay. Um, it's on Amazon and everywhere else that you buy books, but it also, uh, it will be out on May 11th. The hard copies will be in the store on May 11th. Okay, perfect. And one thing you would like to get off your chest. One thing I would like to get, I think we covered it already, that activists should not be broke. That is something, that's that's a norm that needs to be thrown out. That activists should be able to live and thrive just like everyone else. And I agree with that 100%. So Tamika, what's a motto you live by? What's a model that I live by? And it's a new one for me that who is they, the they, get rid of they in your head because they'll stop you from doing things. They'll tell you you can't dress a certain way, can't talk a certain way, can't dance a certain way. They is not real. It's in your head. No more they. (laughs) (laughs) That is such a good one, Tamika. And if I could stop worrying so much about what other people think of me and just worry about how what I think of me, my life would be so much easier. I would have so much more self-confidence if I could get the they's out of my head. Me too. Someone said to me one time, it's not just the idea of saying, getting rid of the thoughts of they and worrying about they. It's also identifying who the they's are. Because sometimes the they could be close people who are really close to you that you depend on, and they're actually pouring negative thoughts into your head about yourself and it's stopping you from realizing your dreams. So we do have to identify who they is and decide whether or not they have your best interests at heart. And guess what? I'm just trying to figure it out. This is real new. But I figure while it's fresh on the press for me, I'll share it with everybody else. Let's figure out they. And obviously, you've been doing something to to make sure that you're taking care of yourself. And that's evident by the conversation that we're having. Thank you so much. Just keep fighting the good fight. Keep stirring up good trouble. We need you. We are need. We need you. And I'm so excited about your book. Tell us where people can find you on social media. So people can go on Instagram to at Tamika D. Mallory, at Tamika D. Mallory. If you're looking for the business page, the more appropriate content, you should go to Until Freedom. That's my organization's Instagram page. But my page, Tamika D. Mallory, is where it goes down. It could be anything from the WAP song and how much I love that (laughs) all the way to how fine a man is. And then I might also be fighting whoever needs to be fought in society. 
But don't come on my page trying to censor me. We do whatever we want to do. Exactly. On your personal page. There you go. There you go. Thank you. You know how we feel about you here at the Smith household, Tamika. We love you. Love you too. So here are my takeaways after my conversation with Tamika. Activism is selfless and thankless work, and we must continue to show up. Don't discount the importance of your contribution, whether it's 10 toes down or through financial donations. The work never ends. Tamika's book, State of Emergency, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Thank you to my guest, Tamika Mallory, for sharing time with us today. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, be sure to rate and review. Follow me on my Instagram at Gammy Norris to share with me your thoughts on the episode. I'm here, I'm talking, and I'm listening. As always, stay grateful, y'all. Positively Gam is produced by Westbrook Audio. Executive producers, Adrian Banfield Norris, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Amanda Brown, and Fallon Jethro. Co-executive producer, Sim Hoti. Associate producer, Erica Ron and Crystal Devon. Editor and mixer, Calvin Bailiff. Positively Gam is in partnership with Art19.